You are listening to the Hybrid Hospitality Podcast. If you're interested in the trends that are transforming hospitality and want to explore what the future of the industry might look like, then you're in the right place. This podcast is brought to you by Stay the Night, a creative marketing agency working with hospitality businesses around the world who are changing the way people stay, work and play. Hi, I'm Rosie Willen, co-founder of Stay the Night, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Kim Whitaker. Kim is the founder of Once, a leading South African travel and lifestyle brand, whose hybrid hotel in Cape Town blends the best parts of a boutique hotel and a backpacker's hostel. When the pandemic hit, Kim sprung into action and launched Ubuntu Beds, an initiative which opened up hostels, hotels and guest houses to healthcare workers in need of a safe harbour. Since 2018, Kim has also run Quela Women, a non-profit organisation which provides young women with personal development tools and access to mentors. In this episode, we talk about the power of leaning into uncertainty, the role travel can play in challenging people's perspectives, and how the youth travel sector is evolving to meet the needs of today's travellers. Hi Kim, welcome to the Highbridge Hospitality Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Rosie. It's great to be here. No worries. So to start with, I wanted to talk about Once and kind of the model that you adopted for Once because Once in Cape Town opened its doors in 2013 and you kind of adopted this hybrid hotel model that was way ahead of its time, really, that sits between a boutique hotel and a backpacker's hostel. So can you tell me more about the concept and why you opted for that? So my history as a backpacker is that I was an English teacher and a ski instructor, and I was working seasons between Austria and South America and teaching English and, and teaching skiing. And I arrived in South America and I absolutely loved the hostel scene and, and I'd never really experienced it before. And so I came back to South Africa with a little black book, like full of all the things I'd learned from my backpacking. And I decided I was going to start a hostel. Um, My parents were really supportive and they said, not before you do a marketing degree, because up until that point, I'd only, I'd studied like fine art and linguistics and that wasn't going to get me very far except for that I could like, you know, talk French with cute French boys. But so I, I studied marketing and I think it was then that I started learning about customer centricity, user design, UX. And even though it's, you know, it's a, it's a long time ago now, it's pretty much 15 years ago, it was still great marketing it has always got the guest or the customer at the core of, of everything. My little black book said something like, oh, it was really shitty that when I was in Barilachi, like all my clothes got stolen by my roommates. I remember vividly like waking up, you know, I'd met these amazing Brazilian girls the night before and we'd all been partying and they left early that morning and in the dark, they'd packed up what they thought was all their clothes and they'd taken my entire wardrobe with them. So I was like, when I open a hostel one day, I will have locking cupboards that will be assigned to a bed. And then little things like I'd come home in the middle of the night and there'd be someone sleeping in my bed. I'm like, dude, what are you doing in my bed? Like gross, it's kind of stiff. They'll be like, beds will be numbered. Like each person will be allocated a specific bed and I will charge them if they move bed. And so and so these like rules started forming. And what I noticed about backpackers, even back then, I mean, I started my first hostel in 2007. And even back then, the, the backpackers that I met 
weren't what I thought a backpack was. They weren't barefoot. They didn't have dreadlocks. Like they weren't kind of carrying a, a guitar and most of them didn't have a backpack. So most of them were had like rolling suitcases, seven pairs of shoes. And so when you're traveling with that amount of gear, it has to be locked away. It has to have a safe place to charge. Like I remember in Australia, like falling asleep next to the charging bank because I really needed to charge my GoPro, but I couldn't lock it and charge it at the same time. So all these little things of like create a locker where you can charge stuff and lock it away. And really it started becoming, I wouldn't say a hotel because what I loved about hotels was usually the location and the fact that there's a bit of sort of culture and a bit of a legend around hotels. What I didn't like about hotels was that people loved being alone in their rooms. What I loved about hostels was being together and having those common spaces where you could just like effortlessly bump into someone. The next minute you're like on a mission somewhere, like three months later, you're still traveling together. That's the kind of beauty that you can only find in a hostel. So really, I think that my very first hostel, 33 South, and um, that was the predecessor for once. Once was just on a far bigger scale. And really, we took over a hotel, a two-star hotel, and we turned it into once by knocking down walls, opening things up, and just trying to focus on the communal space and those areas where people can get together and really meet each other. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned 33 South because I worked there for a little while when I was backpacking in South Africa. It's such a small world. And then we stayed at once in Joburg and we visited once in Cape Town, went to yours truly when we were living there. So yeah, I'm kind of, it's a, it's a really cool backpackers 33 South as well. So the backpacker experience is built around making those connections. Like you said, like that's, what's really special about hostels, I think is it's that bringing people together. And I think a lot of hotels are trying to emulate that now. So how do you at once create that genuine connection between guests? So if you look into the history of backpacking, contemporary backpacking, I mean, I would say the backpacking goes back like thousands of years. You know, if you look at pilgrimages and things, to me, that's just a kind of backpacker's trip. But if if you consider the sort of hustling international, the Kilroys, all those companies have their origins pretty close after World War II, where the realization was that young people need to travel. They need to have an appreciation for other cultures so that we never have a, a third world war and really sort of fostering spaces and exchanges for young people to get together was like part of I mean, I'm going to say the UN agenda, it was part of policy to make sure that young people don't stay in their countries, only exposed to people of their own culture. So that being the origin of a contemporary backpack and a lot of sort of what I'd say in our older school hostel brands, creating spaces for young people to get together is paramount. Now, one of the bigger problems that I've experienced is that someone might be brave enough to even come to South Africa and be like, I'm embarking on this trip, but then they don't want to leave the hostel. And then for most of the time, they're on their phones, texting people back at home, telling them that they're in South Africa. And one of our biggest jobs is how do we actually get young people off the technology and actually enjoying life and actually having healthy debate about different perspectives I see that as one of our big roles. And I think that that is some of the magic that hostel owners and hostel staff can like really tangibly feel. So when you're sitting around a campfire and you start talking about 
really difficult topics that like people struggle to talk about. And it's really easy to like tweet about it. But when you actually don't have your phone there and you have to have a healthy discussion around it and you realize, wow, okay, that's how they do things in Japan. Or like, wow, this is how people think in Germany. Or like, really? There's such a, a different way of thinking about things if you're an American or if you're a South African. And having and creating spaces where that kind of debate actually happens and not just like a neon light with a selfie and it's on Instagram, like really sort of permeating further and breaking through the technology that's what I think like one of our big jobs is. So for example, hotel brands that I think have done it relatively well would be something like the Ace Hotel. I, I realize it's been sort of used as a case study over and over again, but they did it by bringing bands in and they did it by bringing artists in. And these are like sensory sort of tactile things that kind of forced us to put down our phones and actually engage for a moment. The style of food, if I think of, for example, freehand, which might be it's kind of hostile kind of hotel. Also, like it's very tactile. It's very much about bands, cocktails, tuppers, like stuff that actually involves you kind of engaging and, and being a part of the scene. So, yeah. It's interesting what you said about the conversations because a lot of the it's something that I've thought about recently because a lot of the work that we do is around oh, our clients want to bring together. It's this thing of bringing together like-minded people. But then the other day, it just occurred to me, like I've been in some hostels where it hasn't been like-minded people. There's been those challenging conversations. And actually that's a massive like cultural benefit as well to not just be in the bubble, the bubbles that we create online with social media. You don't want to just go somewhere that's going to replicate that bubble and never have your viewpoint challenged, I guess. Absolutely. In my hostel, or certainly like at 33 South and once, we are so proud to work with people from like our guests are from all over the world. They've got completely different viewpoints. And especially as a very young woman in my early 20s, I was like, wow, if I have an opinion that's so strong that I might actually chase someone out of my establishment, I don't want to even go there. So I'm going to be like a passive bystander and I'm going to listen and I'm going to learn. And what informs my knowledge today, whether it's about religion or how to cook in um, in a certain way for, for different cultures or religions. Like I learned that all around the kitchen table at 33 South or listening to guests around the fire pit at once. And so I, I think it's difficult sometimes. It's difficult to hear of someone who is completely different in viewpoint. But if you can listen and understand the world a little bit a little bit better, like that has helped me in so many different ways. And it, it, you know, if you're a marketer, imagine the benefit of going to a new place and really understanding and listening to how people feel and how people think about things that you know how different they think. Like that is gold. You can't pay for that at any university. So, yeah. So I'd be interested to hear which hospitality or hotel brands in terms of marketing do you think are doing it well and which do you think are not doing it so well? Or what are the things you see that you don't think are kind of that best practice for hospitality? So I'm going to say that marketing is so objective, right? So what works for me is absolutely not going to work for my father-in-law. And when I'm booking a hotel, it's going to, as sure as hell, it's going to be very different to when he's booking for a hotel. Like I'm thinking about 
someone who I respect a lot, but who is very different to me, Hmm. different generation, different gender, different background, different upbringing, different everything, right? So what I might think is really amazing and and, and sort of of avant-garde in terms of marketing might not be the one that sells the most beds. So I'll start with something that I'm that doesn't that I wouldn't book. I'm not a big fan of sort of 800 room, thousand room accommodations. It just doesn't resonate with me. And I think it comes back to I traveled a fair bit with my dad, like just sort of uh, daughter father trips. And one trip took us to Hawaii, and we were in a huge like thousand room hotel and. I hated everything about it. I hated the flock of tourists. I hated the umbrellas, you know, with the tour guides and the little, little red umbrella. Like I just hated the whole thing. I felt claustrophobic. So whenever I see sort of branding that's got to do with um, sort of budget, low price, only like $1.99, cheap, 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 sort of price, 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 I go, that that just sort of turns me off. (laughs) That's my personal preference though, right? Because it's working for someone else. But for me personally, it's not working. When I choose a hotel over an Airbnb, it's because they've taken the time to get to know their neighborhood. And in some way, through their marketing and through their customer journey, they're showing me their neighborhood. So as an example, I'll, I'll choose the hotel. I stayed in last night, actually. It was our third year anniversary and so my husband and I stayed in a boutique hotel just over a kilometer down the road and what I took away from it was that the design was stunning like very not overly expensive so cleverly designed but the food like they said who the supplier was which is a farm that's in the area that I've heard of before and that made me feel good. I'm like, great. So the eggs and the meat and the whatever, it comes from a, a neighborhood farm. That's awesome. The soap was a collaboration with like a little soap manufacturer that's on the same block, basically in the same street. And it was a new brand. So the first thing this morning, I'm really like, I bought the shampoo online because I loved it. So I'm in the shower, like shampooing my hair. I'm like, this is amazing. Love the smell, love the fragrance. I'm going to buy it. And I'm on my phone and I've already, and I've bought it. I live in that neighborhood. I haven't even heard of this this little sort of place. Then you can do like a sound bowl experience with with music in the room where they actually get an instructor to come in. You could do yoga. They can take you for a walk around the area. So even as a local, even in my own neighborhood, actually, like in the same, basically the same suburb where I live, I'm going to this hotel and, and I'm learning something new. Like it's a whole new experience from like sense, like from my senses, smell, touch, taste, feel. And I'm learning something about my community, which is, I think, beneficial. We weren't that interested in meeting other people, but certainly could have actually struck up a conversation with with the table next door. And and I could see that happening across the room. And that is, you know, how do you design your layout so that it's not difficult to just shift up and join a new conversation? That's all that, you know, the architecture, the interior design, instead of having individual chairs, how do you have a bench? Mm -hmm. So, so so creating spaces where it's effortless to just join the conversation next door is all part of that design, um, that design thinking, bringing people into the neighborhood and really showing off uh, the neighborhood in the way that's how a hotel or hostel can really embrace, yeah, can, can, can embrace this communal co-living thing. So I've spoken about hotel brands, I think, that are doing it quite well. 
hostel brands, I think, that are doing quite well. I mean, in Cape Town, I mean, I'd have to say once because, you know, I founded it. I'd have to say Curiosity is doing an amazing job. I mean, what I love about their brand is that it is so African and it is so, you can really immerse yourself in the culture of the city and every city has a different nuance and they're really great at bringing that across. I say Abraham Hostels in, in Israel does an amazing job from, again, it's the texture. It's like, come and do an immersive cooking experience. Come and listen to a brand, to a band. Come and taste the city. It's about thinking about all the, the senses of a traveler and really bringing them into a 360 experience. Clink Hostels in Europe is amazing. I love Hans Brinker. It's hilarious. I got like sore sides when I go there. Like, and, and they're new, I must say their newly refurbished rooms are like on point and definitely I, I'm going to say I'd, I, I love them. Yeah, so those are some brands that I really think are are doing great things. They keep reinventing themselves. Yeah, and I think hostels do excel at that. It's like the staff are so part of the neighbourhood or they know the neighbourhood really well. They make the guests feel really at home and like their friends and it's kind of like a different vibe to you're right to a hotel um so mm. to talk about more recently specifically the past year which has obviously had a huge impact on everybody both professionally and personally and out of this period for you Ubuntu Beds was born can you tell me more about the story behind that sure so Ubuntu Beds I was in a really freaked out week about a year ago in March 2020, I came back from ITB in Germany. Uh, I'd done a little skiing trip with a girlfriend in Austria, and I came back COVID positive. Um, and I was number 42 in South Africa. So really, really early days. I didn't know anyone else who had COVID. We were in isolation way before our lockdown. And life was carrying on as normal. People were going to beach parties. It was like full on summer vibes, cocktails at the beach. And here I was like indoors, scared of dying, not really knowing anyone who had had COVID and seeing my friends and and colleagues overseas shutting down their businesses every day. I had to retrench 10 people, 50 people, 700 people. And I'm just going, oh my gosh, this is quicksand. From one week to the next, people are laying off, like uh, closing down departments, shutting down doors, barring. I'm like, what the heck's going on? And at the same time, in my own country, like the news hasn't really hit yet. So it was during that time that I spoke to a doctor in Lombardy in Italy, which was then the epicenter of the pandemic. And someone asked him, what would you have done two weeks ago? if you knew what was coming. And he was talking about healthcare workers being exhausted. He was talking about not having enough cars to transport the dead out of the hospitals. Like it was just terrible. And he spoke specifically about healthcare workers being exhausted, not wanting to go home and and, uh, be with their families. So someone asked him, what would you have done two weeks ago? And he said, I would have spoken to the hotels because they're all closed now. And I would have actually asked them to accommodate the healthcare workers because you know, they're empty and the healthcare workers are sleeping in the hallways in their cars. And I had a bit of a light bulb moment and I thought, I think I'm going to have an empty hotel in a week. And I've got a number of hospitals in our area. Perhaps we could help. So that was the beginning of it. I sort of did a bit of research and then it was 
through kind of a five-hour cleaning spree in the kitchen with Alana's where I said like blaring in my ears that I had this moment light bulb moment I just thought let's make a platform what about just making a website where there's a list of hotels that are keen and Airbnbs that are keen and then healthcare workers that are looking for a space and I started off just thinking about Cape Town and then I was like actually we could just do this for the whole country because if it's on a database it's pretty easy to match that data and and have the things speaking to each other we could even use Google Maps to integrate it and that was the beginning of it. I called a mate of mine in Johannesburg who owns a design agency called Nice Work. I said to him, I'm going on the radio in 36 hours and I want to launch it by then. Can you build us a website and a logo and a brand? I want to call it Ubuntu Beds because Ubuntu is this Southern African feeling of I am because of who we are. So the idea is that if I have an empty hotel, I'll let a healthcare worker stay there because I care for them. And maybe if some of my family members get sick and end up in hospital, they will have a healthcare worker who's well-rested and gives them extra love and attention, right? That's like the feeling of Ubuntu. And he pulled it off. Him and his team like jumped in there, like did this amazing logo, amazing website. Monday morning, I was like, well, we've just launched a platform. <laughs> like, I didn't say it. Like, we just launched it 24 hours ago. And within days, we had a few hundred healthcare workers, a few hundred hotels. And after eight days, we accommodated our first healthcare worker. And it's been flying since then. We've had about 1,800 healthcare workers accommodated around the whole country from like huge cities to little rural outposts because there's a guest house or a backpackers everywhere. And so that has been a really, yeah, it's been a really amazing experience. On the same breath, we had to retrench over 50 people at once. And many of them we were able to rehire through Ubuntu Beds. So almost in the same week, like, I'm really sorry, we have to retrench you, but there's another opportunity. You can start working next week. So that was one of the pluses. And just the other thing is that we were able to put quite a few million rands back into the industry and kind of keep uh, hotels and hostels open. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's been amazing to see how many brands have kind of given back during this period. But I think I have to say it's one of the Ubuntu Beds has been one of the most amazing kind of examples of innovation and acting so quickly. It was like you guys turned it around so quickly. I remember this platform had popped up and I was like, wow. And it's it's lovely to see that something like a silver lining out of this period from that and from the past year more generally. What are the biggest like personal lessons you've learned, would you say? So I've actually written a keynote talk on it. Okay. And the other day I found myself saying that I've started writing a book. So now I'm writing a book on it. Amazing. And <laughs> my biggest learning is to lean into uncertainty. So uncertainty has been such a major barrier in the last year. And I've seen how it changes people. I've seen how sort of having a plan and an idea and a road ahead and clarity or seeming clarity inspires confidence and sort of action in people. And then suddenly when that becomes blurry and the path is not clear and everything's uncertain, how people react and sort of fight, flight and freeze and myself included. My first response when I found out I had COVID and I realized the hotel business was going to go up in flames was like, will I be able to feed my children and will we be out on the street? So it's like straight to survival mode. I'm questioning my shelter, my food, my ability to just provide. 
which is unfounded. And so, but it was interesting to observe that my mind went there straight away. Scarcity. I don't want to share. I'm going to hold on to everything that's mine and I'm going to protect it. And I'm not going to care about like others. And I'm just going to make sure that my family's okay. And then through like an amazing support network, realizing it's going to be okay. Like, you know, we will live. My children, I'll be able to get them through school and I'll be able to feed them. And then realizing actually, this is like the best inventions in the history of mankind were always, they always came out of adverse times. Mm. They always came out of either a war, a famine, a recession, because human beings thrive in uncertain times. And if we can sort of shift our mindset, it is the best time for opportunity. There's never been more funding. There's never been more need for certainty. There's never been like more need for creative ideas that solve real world problems. And so my biggest learning is to lean into uncertainty. And when something makes my gut go, ooh, that's freaky. I don't want to really think about that. I'm like, girl, lean in. Now's the time to lean in. Because if you don't, someone else will. And there's an idea in that. So stuff that scares me, problems that scare me, education, women's rights, you know, all these scary things that came out of 2020 and even that have been around even longer than that, like leaning into those and getting curious about those has been my biggest learning. Yeah, definitely. I think I remember we had a week when the lockdown first hit. I said we had like a week of allowing ourselves to wallow. And then it was like, right, we've got to get moving again and think about what we can do and how we can kind of innovate around this. But you mentioned women's rights there specifically. I think I read an article the other day that said that women in hospitality have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic, or it could have been women across sectors. Um, So I also want to talk about Quayla Women, which is your other organization. Can you tell me more about this and and the mission that you have there? Yeah, so Quayla was founded in 2018, actually. And it was, I spoke earlier about creating spaces where young people can sort of connect, have courageous conversations, learn more about the world. And if I had to say what my biggest learning is about running hostels, it's that. It's the fact that someone from South Africa who's grown up in a very narrow uh, world can meet someone from a different world and learn something new. Similarly, someone from France, for example, might come to South Africa and meet a South African and go, wow, I've learned something incredible today. You know, I've learned something about community. I've learned something about community spirit, a whole variety of things. There is always an exchange. What I know about tourism, I've learned through travel. I've never studied tourism, studied marketing, but never studied tourism. And so Quela, we were sitting on a couch. We got, I, I got an email newsletter saying, are you a travel change maker thinking of changing the industry? Then apply to a booking.com competition. There's this grant available for nonprofits. And I'm like, yes, that's me. I'm a travel change maker. I don't have a nonprofit. Okay, hard Google, how to register a nonprofit online. Oh, cool. I can do it online. Take the day. Great. Register, register. Amazing. I have a nonprofit now. What am I registering for? Oh, yes, the competition. Cool. And so Asanda, my business partner, and myself are sitting together and we were like, let's create a school. Back then it was more of a school for young women from under-resourced communities and 
And the way that we're going to teach at the school is through road tripping. So we're like, we're going to get a bus and we're going to go on a road trip through South Africa and we're going to just learn about life. And, and, and so we entered the competition. We won the competition and we got a, like a bunch of funding to start off as a pilot project. Thank goodness we had the foresight to hire some impact professionals who actually taught us how to like actually build curriculum into it, how to actually build what's called MEL, monitoring, evaluation and learning into it. And so we've been using reflective techniques and experiential learning techniques since day one. Thank goodness, because if it was just left up to us, I think we would have probably just had like a crazy road trip fun time. The outcome was that of the 50 women that we put through the program, 80% got job offers and were actually working in the tourism industry pre-COVID. And COVID opened up a curveball for us because we couldn't travel. We couldn't convene to do our soft skills classes and our hard skills classes. And so for a while, we paused, we ran with the Buntu beds, and then we did an obituary for Quela 1.0 and we launched Quela 2.0 and that's what we're working on at the moment. So we've re, we've had to reimagine Quela, what it looks like now in a world that is that can travel, can't travel, can travel, can't travel. When you're running a, an organization that primarily relied on travel as a way of teaching, it was very disruptive. Mm-hmm. So we've decentralized everything. We now run women's circles at a community level. So we've trained about 174 women across South Africa, how to run their own circles. They're within walking distance of your community. So for example, where I live, we've got a circle. In maybe 20 neighborhoods in Cape Town now, they're circles. Then we also have got a a WhatsApp bot. So the bot is amazing. And maybe I'll leave the bot's telephone number just now so that you can actually have a little text. And her name is Alora. And Alora is a mentor. She basically will tell you everything on how to show up more confident at work, how to write a CV, how to set up your LinkedIn, how to recognize depression if you think that you may have a depression, anything that may be useful topics that and themes that women are struggling with so we use our circles to inform the content obviously everything is highly confidential but from each circle we get themes on like what are things that women are struggling with and then we build content around it and we partner with professionals so for example over there you'll see this book it says how to start a side hustle so one of the themes that was coming up was that women were saying that they want to actually they're happy with their job but they want to start a side hustle so we got a professional called Nick Lambus. He's just written a book called How to Start a Side Hustle. We got him in to do video content to help us uh, create content for our WhatsApp bot. And so we're building out like that. Yeah. That sounds amazing. And so in terms of, I suppose, it's something that's close to your heart. I think it's close to all, all of our hearts as women in the industry. So being a female entrepreneur in hospitality, do you ever feel like you've been underestimated because of your gender? Absolutely. And it's one of the biggest gifts. Yeah. Like I can sneak up on someone and they will like totally not. Like I've, I've gone to conferences with male employees where someone's assumed that he's my boss. And I've just said nothing and I've gone, oh, wow, this is interesting. Like, let's see how this rolls out, you know? And and yeah, I think it's such an advantage. When I see that, I'm just, I think, wow, 
this is an advantage for me. I can, like, there is so much that this person doesn't know and they're showing their colors to me in a big way, you know. Mm-hmm. Being a female on an all-male board is not easy. You get talked over. You, your ideas get sidelined and then brought up half an hour later someone else's ideas. That's, for me, sort of, I've learned, when I was in my 20s, it used to really upset me. It used to <laughs> it used to grind me, but now I I try and apply curiosity to it, and I and I and a bit of a giggle, and then I just call it out. I say, wait, wait, wasn't that my idea from thirty minutes ago? Come on! And then it's like out in the open, you know. Or when I hear people speaking over another woman, I'll say, sorry, you've just interrupted her. Can she please finish? And I think that that's come over time. Uh, when I, certainly when I was in my 20s, it used to irritate me a lot. But I still come home sometimes after board meetings and I say to my husband, you won't believe what happened. He's like, I do believe it because you tell me this like very, very often. Are you surprised? I'm like, I'm, I am surprised. And I always give people the benefit of the doubt, but it still happens. And, mm-hmm. and it'll take time. If I listen to dinner table conversations, like dads talking over moms, brothers talking over sisters like it's how we grew up mm. in many cultures and so it will take time and I see our role as sort of gently quietly just enforcing what I believe to be fairness mm. and do you feel like it yeah. is something that's getting better like during your time in the industry in your career I feel that I have learned better tools so for example. I've been a member of an organization called EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, for three years now, and it is incredible. Unfortunately, it's very elite, and so not a lot of people are are members, but the tools that I've learned through it, I really value. So a few examples would be clear the air. Every board I join now, I insist on a clear the air section at the beginning. Let's just clear the air. And in the the clear the air, I'll say, you know, the last board meeting, I noticed you spoke over someone a number of times and I felt disrespected so my 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 question for today is I might not say hey Rosie you spoke over someone but I'd say I noticed that a number of people interrupted so my clear the air is that it made me feel disrespected and since I'm getting paid for this or at least my time is valuable my request is going forward that we don't interrupt please so the clear the air is a wonderful tool Another incredible tool is nonviolent communication, which is the facts, like what I observed about the facts, how that made me feel and my request going forward. So I often make notes because I'll go, oh my God, that man is an asshole and he's a sexist, but maybe he's not. Maybe he just interrupted. So the fact is someone was interrupted. My observation is, like the person that was interrupted uh, felt disrespected. My feeling is anger and disrespect. And actually my request is just to, and next time, please not interrupt. As opposed to jumping, my mind will take quantum leaps to like. Oh, I can be so guilty. Yeah. And it's, I do that with, what kind of, yeah. you know, like mansplaining. I have to do that with mansplaining. I have to think, is he actually mansplaining or is he just explaining something and he's a man and he doesn't know that I already have that knowledge? It's really like hard to take that step back sometimes because you want, you jump straight into 
defensive I think because we've all come up against it so much from that place that then you automatically go there yeah it's a shortcut and I am so guilty of it and someone pointed out to me I'm I'm busy doing a race relations course at the moment with my co-founder of Quela Asanda we're both really passionate about talking about race in South Africa it's a very tricky subject and I'm going to get it wrong. And as a white South African, there are people who might argue, I don't even have, a, you know, like what is a white South African doing even having this conversation, which is a very valid debate. In any event, we've learned to go into courageous conversations about race quite differently now. First of all, everyone agrees to be present, like so no distractions. Second of all, no judgment because judgment is so big. Uh, is it right? Is it wrong? Is it good? Is it bad? Right? Like, so when someone interrupts me and I go, that's not right. This is bad. Like, it's already judging. But if I take that judgment in a way and I go, oh, that's interesting. I noticed that he interrupted me. Sometimes it makes me think of a different thing. Mm. The third one is that we agree to disagree and we're okay with that discomfort. Yeah. Right. That like, because our views are so very opposing, we may not agree. And that's okay. That's cool. And then finally, confidentiality, not telling other people. Um, and having those four agreements, even I find myself contracting to myself. <laughs> like, wow, I'm heading into a confrontation here. And I know I'm the kind of person who will, like, my knee jerk reaction is anger, rage. Like, and I tend towards, like one of my biggest personal values is bravery and courage. And I can often get that confused. Like there's a difference between being brave and being brave heart. Like, you know, so, so just contracting that to myself when I, when I see that, like, okay, Kim, stay calm, stay present, don't judge, you know, agree to, to disagree. It's okay. And then nonviolent communication yeah. helps a lot. Yeah, there's definitely some huge lessons there, I think. And I think, like you say, it does come with time, probably, for, like, younger women. I know I was a lot more fiery 10 years ago when I was a teen, like, 18, 19, than I am now. So looking to the future now, what's in store, first of all, for once in this coming year, in terms of recovery? And So at the moment, we are, like, I think our common mindset as human beings right now, is that growth is success, right? And if you're growing, you're successful. And if you're not growing, you're stagnating and you're unsuccessful. I think in a year where most economies, especially in South Africa, are in a recession, if you can stay stable, you are growing. Like if, if you're in a if you're in a, a market which is gradually degrading and you can stay stable you're growing and that's okay. So to be honest, I've had to shift my mindset from a growth mindset of growth is good, stagnating is bad, to if we can survive this year and if we can get through it cash positive, keep a healthy cash reserve in the bank, keep our team looked after. As I mentioned earlier, we've gone from 65 to eight and the emotional toll of that is heavy. Um, keeping the amazing people that we still are lucky to work with 
intact and keeping them inspired and and making sure that the people who we've had to let go of are also okay is is a sign of success for me and I'm pretty optimistic about the future of youth travel I must say if I look at I sometimes think that history can be a good predictor of the future and if I look at the 1920s or the roaring 20s as you know what followed after the Spanish flu where people were indoors for a year and a half and then after the third wave the Spanish flu died out and then it was like raucous like you know crazy I hope that there's a resurgence of the arts I hope that there's a resurgence of culture and I think that hostels and hybrid hotels are an amazing space for that to happen I think that artists are looking for homes right now quite literally and empty hotels have that but also we're looking for soul again and connection and I think people in their 20s and in their 30s are searching for connection it's a time of our lives where we're meant to be exploring ourselves and forging new friendships forging new opinions finding you know our future partners and so I'm very hopeful of a great recovery when you know when people can travel again when there's a vaccine and whatnot and so for once, we want to stay solid. Uh, we've had to close down once in Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. So that's we closed that down in June last year, sadly. Once in Cape Town, still going. And really, my aim is to stay strong, to hold our position, and to ride out the storm. It's really interesting talking about trying to look after staff and fall back to those things rather than growth at all costs, you know what I mean? And so finally then... You spoke about the the roaring 20s there. I've had a few conversations around that. And honestly, I feel very ready for that if it's coming after being locked in the house for so long. But finally, what do you think the biggest opportunities are for hostels, hybrid hotels in a post-COVID world? Number one, if I look at my income statement, our biggest expense is rent slash bond and obviously our team, because that is our biggest asset. And I think that one of the benefits of this is that, especially if you're in a market that has high rentals, low negotiating power, I feel that for the next few years, there'll certainly be an opportunity to get some great deals, to negotiate hard, to not back down, because because a lot of the sort of mid-range players People who didn't have strong balance sheets have unfortunately closed their doors. The brands that survive will come out strong. And I think that there'll be extra bargaining power when it comes to either buying property, lending from banks, or renting. So definitely that will come at an advantage. And then, yeah, like, so since the Second World War, this is the highest time in history since the second world war that young people are living with their families again like we have not seen young people that many young people moving back home to live with their parents in in what 60 80 years right and they're getting good money from governments if they're in the northern hemisphere they're staying at home with mom and dad like driving them nuts a lot of the market investment is from like 25 year old males mostly in the US right so like they're investing in stocks for the first time 
So where they would normally be going to bars and like buying beer, they're actually like investing in Bitcoin and the stock exchange and Tesla shares. So I think that when travel opens up again, people will not have the burden of an apartment yet. And so there'll be a gap before the sort of the, the, the dust settles where I think that there will be a lot of travel. The opportunity there for hostels and hotels, I guess, is the same as it was pre-COVID where we were already talking about co-living digital nomads. And I looked up the other day, actually, I think there are only 11 countries that have got digital nomad visas. Like that's a huge opportunity that I see. What, from a policy point of view, what are hostel owners doing to speak to their local municipalities or their national government to say, can we make a two-month digital nomad visa or a three-month or whatever? Because those digital nomads will come and stay in hostels and come and spend locally, et cetera, et cetera. So, that's something that I see as a massive opportunity. Um, and again, going back to hostels, have people staying for three weeks instead of two nights. Mm. Going back to to that sort of trend of, of digital nomads and, and staying in places longer. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for joining me, Kim. That's been amazing. So much good advice in this that I'll be taking as well. Um, thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. And please feel free to follow me on LinkedIn, to follow Quela, Ubuntu Beds and Once Travel. Um, I'm sure Rosie will put all our links in, yeah, uh, sure. in the thing. And yeah, good luck. I'm leaning into uncertainty. <laughs> Thank you. For those listening who want to find out more about Once, you can visit their website at www.once.travel. You can also find out more about Ubuntu Beds at www.ubuntubeds.org and learn about Quayla women at www.quayla.org.za. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Hybrid Hospitality Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe if you'd like to be the first to hear about new episodes. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and if you'd like to follow us on social media, you can do so. Just search Stay the Night on LinkedIn or head to at Stay the Night Co over on Instagram. For more information about what we do, visit www.staythenight.net. Until next time, thanks for listening.